The future of Bangladesh depends on people like you. We are a group of friends who left Dhaka in the early 80s and been working in strategic consulting, international development, diplomatic services, and even one of us built a very large business. Now we want to bring something back to Bangladesh. We want to bring through this platform, through this podcast, our network, our knowledge, and work with you together to shape the future of Bangladesh. Welcome back to this third episode with Dr. Michael Friedman, where Sam Samdani and I continue discussing today, very specifically, what's the situation in Bangladesh and what strategies can the country follow? Now, at the risk of putting you on the spot, Michael, for an outlook for Bangladesh, how things are likely to evolve, and of course, depending on what people do, anything you can share with us uh, so that people know uh, potentially you know, what's coming and how could they potentially, if it's a bad outcome, they could prevent that from happening or minimize that bad outcome. How should they think about what's likely to come in the coming months and weeks? On the COVID so let me, let me say two things about Bangladesh and the, and the system in terms of answering this question. One is that, you know, clearly, like in many countries, but especially it's true here in Bangladesh, we don't have enough data to really be able to answer that question accurately. So I, I have to just, you know, I think all data scientists will always say the same thing. I don't have enough data. I want more data. But in Bangladesh case, this is, this is very much true. We don't we really don't have enough information to really be able to to really understand you know, where we are in this, in this pandemic. Having said that, I will say that, you know, looking back over the last four months, four and a half months, about four months of cases in Bangladesh, we can see, you know, from an overall picture that Bangladesh started slowly. You know, we had cases, it was, they were, we were late to identify cases. It probably came to Bangladesh a little bit earlier than when we identified it, but, you know, whether we missed it by a week or two probably didn't make much of a difference in the big picture of things. And that our, our initial response, we had some challenges in terms of contact tracing and trying to get everyone, you know, getting this virus contained. But again, that really wasn't surprising considering the, the challenges of Bangladesh and the fact that we didn't stop air travel and we didn't really, you know, limit the chances of getting, you know, more virus exposed in the country. And then the next thing happened is that the government decided to have a holiday, which was really actually in many ways a smart move, because at that stage, we needed to do something to try to stop this virus from wildly spreading. And so we tried that. And unfortunately, it didn't work really very well. Cases continue to increase. And we've seen a general increase in cases up until the last week or two, where I think now we're seeing a little bit of a plateau in the number of cases, but we're not really quite sure if that plateau is real or not. But basically, during this whole time period, the control measures basically haven't worked very well. And then the question is, well, maybe the control measures partially worked. Maybe if we didn't do this partial shutdown and we didn't have this, you know, this holiday period that the government called it, maybe the cases would have exponentially increased and we would be in a much, much worse situation. So it's, it's never really that easy to kind of tell in terms of these situations, but the, the overall message is that, you know, our, our measures to control it haven't really worked. And so when you ask me a question like, what's the forecast for the future? I would say that the first thing we have to realize is that up till now, nothing that we've tried in Bangladesh has really worked to control this thing. 
So if you're asking me, are we going to get control of this thing? Are we going to start, you know, bending the curve and starting to go on a downward trend of cases? I would say, what evidence do we have that that actually is going to happen here? Because we haven't seen that up till now, you know? So yeah, that's wishful thinking, but is it really going to happen? The only way that that, that is going to happen from a epidemiologic standpoint is if we get to a point where there's so many people that have already been infected that the rate of transmissibility starts going down because only so many people can now get it. So for example, if you're in a community of 20 people, right, and one person gets it, you have a risk of 19 people, other people getting it in the beginning of an outbreak. And let's just say three or four of them end up getting it and it spreads. Now let's just say 50% of people have already had it at 20. So now instead of having 19 other people that could have it, you only have nine other people that could have it, right? So these nine people, maybe you're only going to have one or two of them get it instead of three or four of them get it when you had all 20. That, that is decreasing the transmissibility by 50%. So that's what we kind of call herd immunity. And this idea of when are we going to start seeing the impact of herd immunity, no one really knows. Some virologists and epidemiologists say you have to get to 60, 70% before you start seeing the impact of herd immunity. I'm not sure about that. I think you might see some impact of herd immunity earlier than that, because it, even though it might not completely stop the virus, it might, herd immunity might start slowing the virus down a little bit. And where are we on that curve in terms of DACA? I don't really, we don't know yet. We haven't done seroprevalence studies to know what percentage of people in DACA are actually already been infected and have some level of immunity to this virus. We just don't know that number. I don't know if that number is 5% or if that number is 40%. That's a huge range that I just gave you. But I, I just don't know the answer to that. And so one of the things that CDC is working on is to conduct these kind of studies so we can have a better idea where we are on the curve and where we're headed. Got it. Now, in terms of, you know, strategy for Bangladesh, you know, we hear a lot of people talking about which country has done well, <laughs> which country to follow in terms of a strategy, you know, New Zealand versus Germany versus, you know, South Korea. What advice would you give to our policymakers in terms of what they could do differently, better going forward? You know, I think that my, my advice to the policymakers, not just for, for Bangladesh, but in general, is is two things. One is... I think it's worth really spending some time thinking about what your strategy is, what your what outcome you're expecting. So right even from the beginning of this, this pandemic, one of the questions I was trying to ask the government and those that I, I had the opportunity to talk to was, you know, what are we trying to accomplish here? Are we trying to stop this virus completely or are we trying to slow this virus down, right? Or are we trying to preserve economic output and other other issues in the in the health system like what is it that we're actually trying to accomplish here and so that question is really vitally important and i think that that message and that strategy has not always been very clear you know sometimes i think countries are trying to eliminate the virus completely and sometimes i think they're just trying to slow it down and so you get this kind of mixed messaging and this mixed strategy and the, and the truth is the strategies are different you want to slow a virus down and you want to completely stop a virus, they are two very different strategies. And of course, stopping it is going to be much harder than just slowing it down. So that's one issue that I would say that I would suggest the governments do is really have an honest strategy, an honest approach 
that understands, you know, this, that understands the best to our ability, this virus and our ability to contain this virus. And for some countries, you know, that answer was to try to eliminate it. Some countries really honestly felt that they could get down to, to zero cases or near zero cases. And there are other countries where I think that's, that idea is a, a little bit of a, of a dream. It's not really likely to happen. It's very, very challenging. So that's the first thing. And for Bangladesh, I would say that, you know, slowing this virus down is probably much more realistic than stopping it. I don't, I don't really see that we're ever going to get to a stage in Bangladesh where we're going to completely be able to stop it unless we get to herd immunity or unless we have a vaccine. And I think those are the two ways that we're really ever going to completely be able to stop it. So then the question is just living with the virus. How do we control it? How do we best live with it? How do we reduce morbidity and mortality? You know, those kind of questions. And then the, the second thing I would say as a, as a general message is really know your systems, your strengths and your weaknesses and try to fix those systems as best you can in an emergency. But that's always difficult in a crisis. I think you have to just kind of accept your limitations and, and work around them. So, you know, Bangladesh, of course, has its, has some significant limitations. It also has some strengths. It has a very large health workforce. It has over a hundred thousand doctors. It produces almost 10,000 doctors per year in medical schools. So from a human resource standpoint, we have a lot of people in the country that could potentially help with this crisis. We have a lot of community organizations. We have a lot of, especially in the rural areas of this country, we have a lot of good, strong infrastructure and a lot of good, strong networks and institutions that, that do work. So we, we can rely and work on, use that as a strength. The limitations are that enforcement of policies in this country tend to be pretty weak. So when the government says that everyone should stay indoors, that's not really going to be followed 100%. People say 100% of people should be wearing masks or you're going to get fined. That's not really going to happen. So we have to also understand that the country has had a long history of not really enforcing you know, its, its laws and its rules very well. So that's going to be one of the limitations. So, we, so you have to kind of use those understandings to then build a strategy that's going to work for your country. So maybe in a country like Vietnam, I don't know, I don't work in Vietnam. I've spent a little bit of time there, but I don't know it very well. But maybe in a country like Vietnam or China, if the country says that we're going to pass a law that says you're going to do this, this, and this, and we think this law is going to effectively control COVID, it might actually work because, you know, enforcement of laws and people following laws is very strong in those countries. Right. But if the country in Bangladesh, the government in Bangladesh has the same approach and says, well, we're just going to pass a law that says everyone needs to wear a mask. We know before that law is even passed, that's not going to work, that that's not going to be there. I mean, that may not be a wrong thing to do, but you can't expect that to be the answer to this uh, pandemic in Bangladesh. You know that that alone passing a law is not going to have that much of an impact. So. These are some of the messages I think that are really important. And this is not just true for COVID. This is true for any issue that we're addressing in Bangladesh, any crisis issue that you just have to, number one, have a good strategy and a good plan. And number two, know the strengths and limits of your country. Very well said. I recognize we're coming near the end of our allotted time. So in the interest of closing, uh, I'm sorry, I, uh, I have a yeah. question. Go ahead. Yes. Go so ahead. Michael, you said there are three options in dealing with the virus, right? One, we tried to wipe it out. That's Australia doing right now. Victoria had 190 cases last night. They said complete shutdown because we, that's 
for us, that's too much. And then you said, of course, in, in the case of Bangladesh, because we don't have enough data, it will be very difficult to control and not knowing where it is. Then you alluded to hard immunity. Is that the only option left for Bangladesh in a way somehow? No, I, I would say that for the second option, number one is you have to understand that the goal is to try to slow the spread down. So this idea of flattening the curve. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that people, I think, forgot about was flattening the curve. And I, and I think people weren't always so honest when they presented the concept of flattening the curve is, in truth, flattening the curve means the total number of cases when you flatten the curve is still the same as the original curve. You yeah, haven't yeah, changed. The, the distribution is different. Right, just, exactly. But most people who think of the word flatten the curve thought that it's going to end up resulting in fewer cases. But that's not really true. It's just distribution, like you just said. So I think for Bangladesh, the idea of truly flattening the curve is definitely a possibility. I think that's something that they could do, which basically means we want to slow this virus down. We're not going to try to eliminate it. We know that that's not really going to be possible, but we definitely want to slow it down. That, I think, is definitely possible. And I think there are efforts underway to do that. I think that, you know, the government is trying to identify high-risk high areas and do more in those areas in terms of uh, mitigation strategies and shutdowns. I think that their government is really pushing the idea of, of, uh, of wearing masks and, and trying to promote that. I think the social distancing part is a little bit challenging. I think the hand-washing part is a little bit challenging here. I think that the self-isolation and the, and the quarantining is happening to some degree. I think people are, are gotten the message that if you're sick, you should stay home. So I think that there are parts of it that are being implemented that are slowing down the virus in Bangladesh. I mean, I think if we did nothing at all, you would see more cases and you'd see things really happen in a much faster process than, we're, well, than what we've had in terms of cases. But how much are we slowing it down and what does it look like in terms of how long it's going to take before we get to some kind of herd immunity? That's where we need more information. That's where I, that's where I am kind of at a limit in terms of really being able to give you a kind of a good answer. Okay. Thank you for that explanation. Okay. Samdhani, continue. Yes. Any other question from you, Suhail? Because I have no. one more before no, we go let ahead. You, go ahead. you know, as we, we explored a lot of different areas, so thank you for your very insightful observations and comments, Michael. So before we let you go, are there areas that we haven't touched on that you would like to raise with our audience here that they need to or must know with respect to dealing with COVID going forward, as you said, living with COVID going forward? Yeah, I would say just there's two things that I would like to just mention. One is that I think risk is in the eye of the beholder, right? So this disease is obviously a a terrible disease. That's a terrible pandemic. But, you know, how people view it in terms of how bad it is, is it's going to be different in different people. They're all going to have their own different levels of risk perception, right? If you're a soldier coming back from Afghanistan or some other place, you know, or, you know, your family is living in DRC, Congo, and has been ravaged by, you know, Ebola outbreaks, measles outbreaks, and other things, they're going to look at COVID and not think this is anything too bad. Whereas, you know, if, you're, if you've lived a relatively uh, safe and life and, and haven't had many uh, disease issues before, this is going to sound very dangerous and very risky. So, I, you know, I think we all have a different level of risk. And I think every country and every culture has to kind of make a decision 
you know, where they are in that risk profile in terms of making these, these hard decisions about, you know, how much do we open up economies? How much do we allow regular services to happen? How much do we allow students to go back to school versus, you know, we need to really do everything to just control this virus and stop it. And like I said, that's a really tough decision for different countries. And I think Bangladesh's government has acknowledged that. I think they realize that at the end of the day, people need to eat. People need to live. The, the food security and the economic security people have here is very limited. And that the country cannot survive very well if we try to shut everything down and shut our garment industry down. We shut our, you know, our agricultural industry down. Everything else is not going to work. So there, there is some very real realization in Bangladesh that we've got to try to figure out some way to live with this virus. And so that I think is a really important point is that I, I think that in countries like Bangladesh, that, that should be the key word is how do we live with this virus um, and try to contain it or, or slow it down? And how do we treat it? You know, how do we try to protect those that are most at risk and get them treatment? So that's a, the other thing. The second thing I just want to mention is that I think treatment and the medical treatment of people is something that we really do need to focus on and do a little bit better job of. I know the government and the Ministry of Health and others are working hard to provide COVID uh, treatment at different hospitals and clinics and to expand testing and other things. I, I think it's been a mixed picture up till now. I think there's been a lot of challenges with the quality of care. I think there's been, you know, a lot of challenges with people's access to care. There's a lot of fear among the health workers, especially early on, because they had high rates of infection about, you know, seeing patients and taking care of their emergencies. And I think the, this is a part of the epidemic that we really, I think, can do a better job. I think this is an area that we need to focus on and, and do better. I think from a science perspective, we're learning more about the different drugs that the better ways to manage these patients. That's, I think, going to be a very big blessing over time. I use the example of HIV where, you know, we initially were talking about prevention of HIV and trying to eliminate HIV. And what we ended up realizing after many years is that we ended up finding a drug that could, could contain the virus in terms of morbidity and mortality, the antiretroviral therapy drugs that allow people to live almost normal lives now. So we haven't found a vaccine. We haven't found the perfect prevention methods in terms of uh, people practicing safe sex or other issues. But we did find a medication. We were able to medically treat the disease to the point that it, it has had a positive benefit on overall mortality and morbidity of, of HIV. So I'm not saying the same exact thing will happen for COVID, but I do think there are some lessons in HIV that we could apply here, which is to say, you know, we should try to focus on prevention, but we also should, are definitely focusing on the curative side, on the treatment side. And how can we get it? How can we make sure that we're studying these different drugs and trying to come up with the right medical combination that really reduces morbidity and mortality the most we can? And I think in the last three, four months, there has been some good progress in that area. I think we have found a couple of drugs that work. And I think that is having an impact. So I think that's one of the positive things. Terrific. Yeah, on that front, by the way, if I were to ask you for the odds of a vaccine on this, what is your latest gut feel or understanding of the developments on the vaccine front? Anything in particular that you would like to share with us? 
I will just say two things about this. One is that I think the predictions of, of well, I think it depends on who you talk to, but I think a lot of the science, a lot of the, the more senior officials and others have, have explained that it takes a long time to develop a vaccine and that it's going to be a while before we have a vaccine for the general public. I agree with that. It's not a quick process. So we, we have to be patient in terms of waiting for a vaccine, meaning that it's clearly going to be at least into 2021 before we have a vaccine that, that anyone is going to get, maybe much longer than that. The second thing I'll say is that the idea that we are definitely 100% going to get a vaccine that works and works well is not, I would say, is not 100%. Right? And I don't, I'm not a vaccinologist, so I don't know the details of it. But I would say that, you know, the history of vaccinology is filled with positive success stories and failures. And so we have many diseases like HIV, like dengue, where we have tried hard to get a vaccine and we haven't succeeded yet. So I hope that COVID is not in that category, but we don't know. I'm optimistic that we'll get a vaccine, but I'm not, a, I'm not banking 100% that we're going to get a vaccine. Well, on that sobering thought, I cannot thank you enough, Michael, for this wonderful discussion we just had. So I want to, on behalf of our audience, as well as our team here, I want to thank you. And Suhail, I pass it on to you. Thank you very much, Michael. It has been really eye-opening for me and I'm sure our audience as well. So let's keep in touch and let's hope this curve gets flattened, not for not only for Bangladesh, but everywhere, so that we can go out and lead a normal life. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks, thanks for having me. And I appreciate being your first guest. So good luck with the podcast. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you again. I hope you enjoyed today's show. See you next time on a similar topic. Please feel free to leave your comments behind and suggestion what topic we might cover next. Thank you.